just terrified of what this could mean in terms of their licensure or their disability insurance or things like that. And that, that is tragic. From Spa Dameron Tenney, it's the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Real stories, real inspiration, real growth. A show for doctors who are ready to improve their overall wellness in every aspect of life. Now here's your host, Shane Tenney. On the Prosperous Doc Podcast, if you're a longtime listener, you know that we talk about all aspects of wellness, whether it's physical wellness, uh, like the interview we did with Colin Zhu a couple episodes ago talking about culinary medicine, whether it's relational or financial wellness. Today, we're talking about emotional wellness and mental health. We all know there is a mental health crisis in our country. Certainly, it's been exacerbated by the global pandemic. And it's taking a disproportionate toll on our healthcare providers. Grateful to have as my guest today, someone who can bring some experience, some authenticity, some compassion to the topic. Dr. Michael Myers is often referred to as the doctor's doctor. He's devoted his career to the mental health and well-being of his fellow physicians, of, of you, you know, your colleagues around the country. Dr. Myers is professor of clinical psychiatry at uh, SUNY in New York, Downstate Health Sciences University in Brooklyn. He's authored numerous books, including Why Physicians Die by Suicide, The Handbook of Physicians' Health, Doctors' Marriages, and most recently, we're going to talk about today, his recent book, a memoir, Becoming a Doctor's Doctor, where he offers his inside look at the struggles physicians face as they shoulder the social and emotional costs of serving the community. I'm excited for our conversation today. We're going to talk about his new book. We're going to talk about his work with physicians, definitely COVID and the stigma around doctors' mental health. Dr. Myers, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Shane. I'm happy to be here. Well, we appreciate it. Certainly, uh, I think some topics that are, are timely and the more airtime we can give them, I think the better it is for everyone. Let's start at the beginning or maybe your beginning. There was a time, I think a couple decades ago, when you were a freshly minted undergrad with the world as your oyster and the eagerness to go to medical school and, and all the, the medical specialties in front of you. And I'm curious, what drew you to the field of mental health in the first place? And maybe some of the story about what's led to your, your life's work and serving your colleagues and, and mental health. Okay. Thanks a lot, Shane, for that question. Yes, it has been a couple of decades. <laughs> I studied medicine in the 60s. When I graduated from medical school, psychiatry as a specialty wasn't on my radar, actually. I was a little bit late coming into, into the field of psychiatry, largely because of events that had occurred. I look back now, I lost one of my roommates to suicide when I was a first-year medical student. You can imagine you know, what that was like. He was a medical student as well. And uh, that was in 1962. The stigma associated with Oh, ill health or suicide in the medical profession back in those days was unbelievable. And in fact, there was no response actually from our medical school. It was really, I don't know if you'd call it covered up, but there was no discussion. It was as if Bill never existed. So we just buried ourselves in our studies. And yeah, as you know from doing this work, how easy that is to do. But yet, of course, my thoughts and memories of him never really went away. So after that, I worked, at, 
I did a rotating internship in Los Angeles. I started internal medicine residency. And I, one of the things that I noticed too, after between those two things, working as an emergency physician in Detroit, Michigan, was my exposure to suicide. And it was really quite profound doing the kind of the medical surgical end of things when people had made very serious suicide attacks. And it was through that that I got this thinking that I would like to attempt to be involved in people's lives before they reach that desperate point. And so then my segue into psychiatry and then during my training, I had this unusual experience of actually looking after some physicians, a doctor's wife, a doctor's child, and then off I went. And as, as your, your work in the field of psychiatry and your compassion for mental health based on what you've seen, that's just led to this work of whether it's writing or speaking or authoring journals or just one-on-one work, which I, I want to talk with you about in a couple of minutes here. It's just been a calling. And, and from what I know of you and have observed, I think it's just been a blessing to the field. Is that overstating the, the work that you've tried to do? I've, yeah, I'm passionate about it. There's no doubt about it. And I think it is rooted in so many of those things that I just mentioned a couple mm-hmm. of minutes ago. Now, looking at kind of the just the the landscape around us right now. We're recording this in early 2021. There's been a pandemic with us the last year. COVID is everywhere. People are locked in and shut down and socially distanced, and it's taking its toll. And now, now physicians deal with illness and loss among their patients all the time, but this is unique. What's your read on kind of the state of the medical community right now? You're so right, Shane. I mean, this has been a very, very stressful time. The calling of physicians and the work that doctors do really is to serve the humankind, the rest of the public. But yet the messaging that those of us who work in the field of physician health have been trying to really get out there right from the get-go when New York City was the epicenter. And so our doctors on the front lines were working so hard, so busy with self-care that they had to make sure, though, that they took time away to just set a rest and recoup. In those days, of course, there was such a fear of contagion, nothing about the virus, no catastrophic fears that they could become ill themselves, mm-hmm. transmit it to their loved ones or each other. What we did at SUNY Downstate, our fellow psychiatrist and I, Dr. Viswanathan, we started support groups. It basically, when Governor Cuomo declared our hospital, the University Hospital of Brooklyn, as COVID only, we really sprang into gear because we knew that frontline physicians were going to need that. Mm-hmm. So we did that for the hospitalists, the critical care physicians, the anesthesiologists, all of the trainees, as well as then emergency physicians, too, because they were dealing with so much right in the emergency room, making these decisions about whether you admit or not volume of sick people, the volume of death in those early weeks was just sort of overwhelming for the doctors. So we just kept doing things like that, trying to, and they, the outreach that they had for each other was and has been unbelievable. Mm-hmm. There's been collegiality between and among physicians that I've never seen. And in fact, one of the, I remember one of the physicians saying, you know, I used to be so, I was so burned out before this pandemic. Not anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm doing work that, yes, it's hard. It's painful at times, but this is what I was trained for. And we're not having to worry with so many of these Oh, what they would call sort of the systemic issues having to do with you know, the way 
people that we first managed care and things like that, they really felt vital. So therefore, you know, at seven o'clock, when people were making noise out on their balconies, cheering for all the frontline workers across the city or across the nation, that meant a lot, but it's so interesting. There's a certain modesty in physicians who said, you know, I really don't like being called a hero. They're so grateful. They've got to call you something. And so just kind of keep your modesty yeah. and, just, and just accept that. They really have tremendous respect for all of what you people are doing. You've had the closest optics to the, the physicians around you in New York. How are they faring now? Are these, these groups the ability to talk about not just their patients, but talk about themselves? Yes. Are they hanging in there? Are we seeing that just the weight and the cloud that in some ways the country's feeling is it heaviest there or are they faring yeah, well and that sort of thing? That's a great question, Shane, because these things are regional, as you know. This kind of moved west and south. And so if you know, everybody knows about that. And but now that we've got the vaccine coming, things like that, there's a little more hope. But yet, of course, I think the term is one that so many people, stakeholders who use is cautiously optimistic. And I think Fochi is saying things like that as well. We still can't let down our guard, et cetera, et cetera. What we're trying to do, because all of those groups are on pause, but what we're doing, we're continuing to do the one-on-one -on -one counseling. There is indeed sort of a fear in doctors that, oh my gosh, I hope that we don't get big surges like we had before. That kind of, we, we know more about the viruses. Again, we've got a bit of a toolkit now, and not as many patients are dying as before. But of course, I'm sure you know this, and what everybody's worried about are the long-term consequences of this virus. We're still learning about it, these, these long haulers, they're called, who are developing neuropsychiatric complications, cardiovascular problems, things like that, that it's all new. And so there's a lot of research going on. A lot of doctors are paying very close attention to this, of course. That's kind of in the workplace. The other thing, though, is that there's, this has made profound changes in doctors' practices as well. And you know, so many of them are redeployed. Sometimes they have let staff go and doing virtual primary care and other care as well. That's also kind of getting back slowly and sort of thing. But we're still in the early stages of what I would call recovery. Mm -hmm. But once again, I would still say, though, that there's so much hope out there. The applications to medical school have shot up even higher than they were before. So people are, want to do something. You know, they're not they're not running away from this from this virus. In general, the even before COVID, we know. Uh, I think since the statistics have started being tracked over the last couple of decades, I'm thinking of a conversation I had with Dr. Dyke Drummond a couple months ago. Yes. And, and physician. The rate of depression and suicide among physicians, among medical school, is, is higher than the general population. Why is that? Since COVID, we certainly don't have those data, for instance, whether, whether this is something that's, everybody's concerned about that. Could the rates of suicide go up? There's a lot of research going on, but it's still too early. Substance use. Before all of this, though, it's... What we know, and what's really being paid, the attention is being paid to, though, is that the work of physicians is indeed stressful. I think for too long, there's been this sort of sense that, you know, all doctors are just tough, they're workhorses, just give them more work, pile it on, and they can do it. But, you know, we've known for a couple of decades, the longer, 
that that's not healthy. It can't be sustained. That's where the term burnout come in, where the terms moral injury come in, and where doctors are saying, look, at we're human too. And that was the whole thesis, and we'll probably come to that a little bit, of my memoir, that the messages I wanted to get out there were the doctors are human too. They can become ill, but they can also recover really, really nicely and get healthy again and get back out there. So it's that as well as just maybe personal vulnerability. But yet we all have our own personal giving our families of origin, how we grew up, stresses in our lives, things like that. Yeah, and the, and the challenge I've heard from other physicians and folks I've interviewed, there's the, the pressure of, just the internal pressure of, I have knowledge which is unique and special and healing or, or life-saving in some cases. And if I don't do this, who will? I mean, there's a line of patients out the ED that would need to be seen. I can't just, I'm sorry, I'm tired, but there's that just the challenge of reconciling the fact of I got to take care of myself to care for yep. you, but you need care acutely. And that's it's always not easy to tease out, is it? It isn't, Shane. I can remember hearing that three decades ago. If I had to put a doctor on medical leave because her or his depression wasn't quite far along yet for them to return to the workplace, oh my God, they said, you, you can't. I, I have to work. I've got to get back out there. My colleagues, they're overworked. You know, that sense of responsibility mm -hmm. and guilt. And they said, I'm sorry, but this is what we have to do because I'm just kind of worried about your safety right now. I don't want you making errors. So you've got so much on your plate already. The last thing you need is a complaint from a patient or a lawsuit. Yeah. So give me a few more weeks to work with you. That you better get you back part-time, that sort of thing. Talk a little bit more about just that, the stigma around seeking help for mental health or the seeking help for depression or, or, or burnout or those sorts of things. Shane, I always like to break this down into both what we call internalized stigma and external stigma. So the internalized stuff, the interior stigma, is what we do to ourselves. You know, we tend to be perfectionists in medicine, and in, we're kind of at one level rewarded for that because if you're not somewhat perfectionistic, you're not even going to get into medical school or dental school or something like that. Yeah. Then once you get in, it's okay, now you can relax. It's hurt, so you can only relax so much because you've got to keep up. Your knowledge, there's a lot of information that's packed into four years. And, you know, these are lifelong learning specialties in medicine, dentistry, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all of that. So we can be hard on ourselves. And so, therefore, when you begin to develop some symptoms of suffering, there's this tendency of feeling weak or flawed or inadequate or less than. So that's the internalized stuff that we beat ourselves up. The external stuff is actual discrimination. We're individuals suffering from or recovering from a mental illness or whatever are discriminated against when it comes to and this is the, this is the part that so many of us in the physician health movement have been fighting these are the questions that are asked on on medical and dental licensing applications in renewals malpractice insurance credentialing applications to hospital medical centers malpractice insurance, things like that. Mm -hmm. So those are the other things that we're trying to, basically what we're saying is that do not ask any questions unless they have something to do with impairment, not with illness. And those questions have to be about current things, not past things, current things. With that said, I mean, that's been the historical stigma that just in some ways requires 
or has resulted in physicians, you know, not disclosing or not talking or things like that. There are trends taking place, correct me if I'm wrong here, but in some states and with some medical boards to to help open up the opportunity for physicians to be more vulnerable or, or those sorts of things that's taking place now, isn't it? Oh, actually, yes. And that's the very hopeful piece. Basically, the national licensing boards have been looking at these questions. Here in the state of New York, for instance, when we take out a license, there are no questions asked about our health at all. But there's, I think, only about a dozen states like that. But the Federation of State Medical Boards, though, is looking at this nationally. And what we've been recommending is a template, something like this. Are you currently suffering from any illness that's affecting your ability to practice safe and competent medicine? If so, please explain. So that's the part CT touches on impairment, and it doesn't partition off substance use disorders or other mental health from things like diabetes, multiple sclerosis, cancer, anything like that. So it's all kind of under your health. So as that improves, that's going to make it easier. Shane, I'll just mention one of the things where, thing where I saw this in a tragic way was the research that I did to put together the book on physician suicide, where I interviewed family members of doctors who had taken their lives. I can't tell you there was at least 15 to 20 percent of these families that I interviewed where their deceased loved one, physician loved one, died by suicide without a consultation. They did not go to a primary care physician, to a psychiatrist, to a psychologist, to the clergy, anybody, because they were just terrified of what this could mean in terms of their licensure or their disability insurance or things like that. And that that is tragic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely tragic. Yeah, it, it is. At the risk of, of asking you too personal a question, mm-hmm. I'm struck by the fact that of course that thankfully there's more dialogue around these topics now. But knowledge doesn't mean that we're immune from them. And I guess I'm just curious, in your many decades of service, have there been times where you've struggled with depression or anxiety or those sorts of things? And how did you work through those or how's that gone? Yeah, very good question. I can kind of do that in two parts. Certainly when I went through training, when I was having just you know, stressful things, I got, some, I got some therapy then, very helpful. And also at other times through my career as well, when stressful things, family. And then, as I mentioned in the book, way down in my life course, when my marriage was ending and I was coming out as a gay man, I was 64 years old at that time. I was also in therapy at that point as well. And that was extremely helpful because I was transitioning. I was not only sort of leaving a 40-year marriage, but I obviously had concerns about my wife as well as my adult children. Things like this, you know, it's a major transition in my career and things like that. The therapist I had was so helpful, mm-hmm. just so, so reasonable and so hopeful. It's a great example. I, I'm grateful for you to bring it out because I think it's, it's an element of, look, we, we need to practice what we preach. Just listening to a podcast on mental health doesn't mean you're immune from it. It means here's, a, here's an opportunity to take action, to care for yourself, and yes. even the experts do. I appreciate you sharing that. I want to take a quick break here and then come back and talk a little bit more about your book and some of the one-on-one work that you've done. Do you have a financial junk drawer? Even before I describe it, you probably know what I'm talking about. Just like that proverbial drawer in your kitchen or laundry room, you know the one filled with pens and pencils, screws and duct tape, matches, 
chopsticks, maybe even an old sock. The drawer filled with things that you didn't know where else they belong. Well, many of us, as we go through life, accumulate a sort of financial junk drawer filled with an insurance policy we bought from a college roommate after graduation, an old 401k that we never moved from an early job, or bank accounts that we opened to get a car loan or mortgage, even though we don't bank with that institution. The more products, accounts, and policies you have, the harder it is to create a centralized vision and progress towards the goals that you have. Whether you're working with a professional financial planner or trying to tackle these things by yourself, the more organized you can be, the more effective you'll be at making the changes and monitoring the results towards the goals that you have. If you need help in this regard, click on the show notes below and download our free guide, Five Steps to Organize Your Finances. I can't say it's a fun way to spend a weekend, but you'll be amazed at the progress you can make if you'll just start cleaning out your financial junk drawer. All right, so Dr. Michael Myers, thanks so much for your just helping us dive through this topic of, of mental health. I know one of the things you talk about in your latest book, the memoir on becoming a doctor's doctor, is the work around just couples therapy. Not a lot of psychiatrists work with couples, but you have. What are some of the unique challenges that doctors' couples have that might be different from, from the average married couple? Yeah, thank you, Sam, for asking. About it. Yeah, because you're right. Psychiatrists generally don't do couples work. I mean, there's, there's been a few of us over the years. I didn't get any training in, a, in my residency, but then my practice, by the way, has always been half-time and then half-time academic work. So in those early years of practice, I was seeing so many individuals with marital difficulties, and I just felt handicapped. I felt that I couldn't offer enough except quote unquote support. So I went and got some training. And so then what I did then, and I practiced then, you know, basically until I retired. So basically, again, I said the same sort of thing. You know, doctors are like everybody else. We too can have stresses and strains in our marriages. One thing I did notice, and it depends on whether it was a more sort of traditional doctor's marriage or perhaps a dual, a dual career or a dual doctor marriage, but that certainly evolved over the decades of my work as well, was so often the time that they really didn't set enough time just for plain old-fashioned communication. And so, so much of the work I was doing with physicians was really making sure that they protected that quality time for each other as a couple, and then, of course, as a family as well. Because you know, marriages of very busy physicians have also worked over the years, this sort of thing. So there's been a template for that. So I really just needed to help doctors really in that respect. I put some, I think, four or five different disguise case examples in that chapter. And one of the ones that I think people have been quite surprised about, there was a couple in the middle years with growing kid, a dual doctor couple. And the chief complaint I'll never forget was uttered by the woman who said, our problem is called mopping up after the affair. So quite traditionally, you tend to look at the man, you think that he's had the affair, but in this case, it was her. And what I was able to tease out very early in that first visit is that this affair was rooted in the fact that she had an undiagnosed low-level hypomania of bipolar illness that hadn't been diagnosed. She had a pure postpartum depression after one of her children, but then everything was kind of under the radar. And anyway, what my point about all of this was, was that I was able then to make the diagnosis, treat her, 
appropriately for her illness. By the way, and her husband was not surprised about this because he was worried about her as well. He just felt her judgment was really off. She agreed. What I had to help her with, of course, as you can imagine, is the shame. Oh my God, that poor woman, she just felt dreadful about something like this. It was just, that was the last thing in the world that she would have ever thought would occur in her life. He was a prince of a man. They were both lovely, lovely people, as were their adult kids. I got to meet them as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it's such a good news story in terms of a very happy ending. I know that you also write in your book about just the work that you've done has taught you humility. What do you mean by that? That's why I decided to put a chapter in the book called What My Physician Patients Have Taught Me. There's two parts to this. I think there's a tendency in all of us in medicine, many of who become subspecialized, and especially as a doctor's doctor, to get a swollen ego, a big head. You know, I must be good if doctors are coming to me, that they trust me and they think that I do good work. And that can just kind of feed into some sort of narcissism or arrogance or whatever, that sort of thing. I had to fight a lot of that thinking that, look, at what's most important is that I do good work. I got to set the bar high, et cetera, et cetera, that sort of thing. So when you're looking after people, though, who are brought to their knees with the difficulties that they're having, fellow professionals in their personal life and their marital life, you can't help but be humbled by that. And then as you also know, came from suicide, threats of suicide are all through the book as well, losing patients. But then I also put in that chapter a touching story of a high-functioning woman in our hospital who insisted on being treated right on a teaching unit. She wasn't a psychiatrist. She was in another branch of medicine. Because I was going to have a colleague look after her in another medical center so she could have some privacy, et cetera. So she said, no, I'll be treated here. And that woman, she helped my medical students and residents with their own sort of humility, and that they thought they had such admiration for her, she just accepted, yes, I'm a physician, but I'm a very depressed woman right now at this time. Again, another one of these lovely stories where I just, we all thought, when or if our time comes, I hope that we will have the the dignity and courage that this lovely life comes with us. You've done a lot of research and dealt with over your career suicide. It's hard to understand. I know there are many folks that you've worked with, that you've counseled, that have had thoughts of suicide and, of course, haven't acted on it. What should people better understand about suicide? It comes back to that same sort of thing that, look, we're human too. This can happen to us as well. Because, see, that's the paradox of all of this. I come from a completely non-medical family. When I started working in this area, my brother, for instance, couldn't wrap his head around them. So they, my doctor, why would a doctor die by suicide? You guys got everything going for you. you know, higher education, status, money, et cetera, et cetera. So I had to explain about psychiatric illness. And sometimes it can be very elusive. The doctor himself or herself doesn't quite feel it. The family may not notice. So I do so much education on this. Things to watch for, red flags making sure that we can kind of bust that stigma so that the doctor can just get help. Because it breaks my heart when I see people, including physicians, dying by suicide of treatable illnesses. Mm -hmm. So 
because this doesn't happen in other branches of medicine. I've got a lot of friends who are oncologists. I say, you ever heard of a doctor dying of cancer who didn't go to an oncologist at least once? Said, no, I haven't. I said, well, we certainly see it in my branch of medicine. Mm-hmm. So there's those sorts of things because these things can be treated. There's so much research going on. And by the way, I will just mention this because we we're talking about COVID. Dr. Lorna Green, the emergency physician who her suicide reached national attention. She was the, the chair of emergency medicine at Allen Clary University Hospital here in New York City. Her tragic death after she herself developed COVID really galvanized the nation. And there is so much, so much that has come out of, of that horrible loss. Her sister Jennifer and her brother-in-law Corey are doing amazing work with Congress. They have a bill before Congress, the the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Workers Initiative bill, something like that. Tim Kaine has put that before Congress. It's to bring us out of the closet, to make a difference, to promote more research, to make sure that we keep fighting the stigma so that doctors don't have to be ashamed. That's what she was struggling with. And it, it just, it was so painful to listen to them describe the fear that she had about losing everything because she got ill. On the chance that there's somebody listening to our conversation today who is either struggling with depression or acknowledges they've had thoughts of suicide or just wish it was over, or they've got a family member or a friend, and there, there is the fear, what's gonna happen? If I seek a therapist, then are they gonna be obligated to notify the medical board? Are they gonna have to notify my hospital? Are they, you know, those sorts of things. What happens? Somebody raises their hand and says, I'm struggling. Can you help me out? What happens? Such a good question. That's the other thing, too, that I'm often asked. My line is always the same. Whatever you do, do something. Okay? And then so that might mean, because there's been a reason sometimes where they've kind of murdered this out to you or whatever, or you might approach them. But the point, though, is is that you have a one-on-one, confidential, personal conversation with that individual. You could be in any walk of life. You don't have to be a medical person or whatever to try to just sort out any way you can how serious this might be at this time. And then the next thing, of course, is then to gauge all the that about getting help. The one thing I always tell individuals who are, are reaching out to a fellow physician is when you appraise them of the resources because you know that you want them to see someone that they should. And I learned this from a videotape that I did years ago on physician suicide was this. It's not enough to just give them a couple of names or a phone number of resources, call him, call her or whatever, that sort of thing. When you're so ill like that, you can't make those phone calls. Or if you can, it's just crushing because your self-esteem is in the toilet somewhere. You've got no energy. You feel like you're bothering people. So I always say, you set that up for them. Say, look, let me help you with this. I'll make the phone call. I always say, if they insist, though, because they feel you're being kind of infantilizing or whatever, I said, okay, give them 24 hours or something. And check back with them, because if they haven't done that, you do have to do that. If once they get into care, then maybe they'll realize, whew, I do need to be here. And I've just seen this so many, many times with my ailing doctor patients themselves. They are so relieved to be there. Then you get going on making the correct diagnosis and proper treatment. And things like that. So it's that human connection. And when you use the first person plural as well, we are going to get you through this. Let me help you with this, or I'm going to help you with this, or whatever. If it's too much of 
you do this, you do that, or, you know, you're going to be depressed, you need to do this. That can feel alienating, something like that. And this gets, we come full circle, Shane, to what we've been talking about. Because with COVID-19, again, I've seen such outreach between and among physicians caring for each other. And doctors are openly talking about their feelings these days. Mm-hmm. Like it's more acceptable. They're talking about their feelings with their trainees, which is healthy, normal, good. It is. COVID is such a recipe for disaster to the degree that loneliness and isolation is a common denominator among suicide. Yes. Yeah. Social distancing and COVID has only exacerbated that. And but in the midst of that crucible, the resistance, and as you're talking about, whether it's on a national scale or legislative or thing of no, we are not going to be sucked down this. We are going to start conversations we never would have had the pressure to have to have before. You just used an amazing and important word there, loneliness, because that's a feeling state that until a little while ago, a lot of people had trouble saying, I just feel so lonely because they thought, I don't want to sound pathetic. But nowadays, both men and women are using that. I feel so lonely with this isolation that I can't hug anyone. I haven't seen my grandchildren. Like, yes, Zoom is fine, but I can't wait to see the person. And even if I have to use social distancing, or but when we can touch, we can actually. But so those are big factors that we're really looking at in terms of how that's making people feel depressed, perhaps suicidal, things like that. Yeah, yeah. As you look over your career, you've authored a number of books, you've authored a number of papers, you've done a ton of work. What's been the biggest challenge for you? I would say the biggest challenge is, I hate to sound hackneyed, but but it is stigma. And even if we didn't really always call it stigma, it could be that resistance, though, to speaking to someone, bearing so much alone, sharing that with someone, which eases it. There's the stigma piece, but there's also something else, I think, in medicine, which has to do with sort of rugged, ruggedness or something, or individualism, like, it's like, I'm tough. You know, we use the term, in surgery, they use the term grit. Got the grit. That's kind of, but yes, it's great to have grit, but yet sometimes our grit is going to be a small G and not a capital G, this sort of thing. And so when we can sort of realize that, that this is why the word resilience has become kind of a a tough word. We use it in medicine a lot. We never want to use it against somebody. Like, you don't seem to have much resilience. Well, I'll tell you, when people, you can take the most resilient physician, and they're in the midst of some type of major illness or trauma in their life, they're not going to feel very resilient. They will, but that's going to take a little time. Yeah, yeah. So it's that kind of stuff, Shane, I think, that, that I'm seeing big changes in. I'm so hopeful about everything. I just I just feel that things are, despite all of this and what we're going through, in, in the world, I think, of physician health, we're making big strides. On the trajectory that we are on in this aspect of medicine, hopefully our healthcare providers are headed for a healthier future than ever before. Yes, and we owe it to those we've lost mm-hmm. because we have. Michael, thanks so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your thank you, Shane. Uh, insight. So thank you. thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you want to explore Michael's books, his background further, you can find a link to his website in the show notes. Again, his book is 
a memoir, Becoming a Doctor's Doctor. You can track that down. And as always, we appreciate you being here. If you have suggestions for topics or guests that you'd like for me to chase down an interview, by all means, you can just email me directly, shane at whitecoatwell.com. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you back here next time. This episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast is over, but you're not alone on your journey. Spa Dameron Tenney has been helping physicians and dentists prosper through financial planning for over 60 years. To connect with us, visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Join us on the next episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast.